This is Fire Rescue One Side Alpha Podcast, putting fire service leaders in front of hot topics facing firefighters today. Now here's the executive editor of FireRescueOne.com and FireChief.com, Chief Mark Bashore. We're spending a few minutes uh, today with Dr. Burton Clark, who this year marks a phenomenal milestone at 50 years in the fire service. Uh, From having been a Washington, D.C. firefighter and a Washington area volunteer to program chair at the National Fire Academy and many other roles, Dr. Clark has been a tireless advocate for firefighter safety. Doc, you and I have talked many times over the years about the safety culture the fear, stupidity, and and cowardice that generally shapes the American fire culture. Can you talk about that culture and what uh, you believe we need to change? Thanks for having me on, Chief, and uh, thanks for reminding me how old I am. (laughs) But I guess guess when you get to have 50 years of something, you got to celebrate. It's all good, right? (laughs) Yes, exactly right, yeah. Uh, Well, so over that time, I mean, I walked into the fire service accidentally. I just happened to walk into a firehouse one day. And when I was 20 years old, then my whole trajectory in my life changed. But now now that I can look back, I realized that I came to the fire service with a whole set of work, culture, experience, and background. Uh, So I think I need to give you a little of that background to explain why I ended up where I'm at today about firefighter and our, the, the, the relationship to our culture and our own safety. Okay. Um, I came to the fire service from the water safety community. I was a YMCA water safety instructor and an American Red Cross water safety instructor, and I was a lifeguard. So I spent some six years in that community and both being learning how to swim then being a lifeguard to save people if they were drowning and then teaching other people how to be lifeguards. So, so one of, one of the cardinal principles within the lifeguard and life-saving discipline, if you will, is that the lifeguard never trades their life for the drowning victim. That is unacceptable behavior to the point where we are actually taught to let the drowning victim go completely unconscious if if they are fighting you and trying to drown you before you try to bring them in. Hmm. So that, I, I think that was in my mindset. When I walked into the firehouse, it wasn't that way. Uh, the fire service saw the death and injury of a firefighter as something heroic. And without me knowing it, that just didn't seem right. Something didn't seem correct about that. And right away, when I looked around, I mean, the first couple of times I got injured, I didn't see it as heroic. I saw it as I made some kind of mistake. And it wasn't a red badge of courage. It was something stupid that I did. So I guess I kind of walked to the beat of a different drummer from the first day I walked into the firehouse. And and that notion stuck with me. So then when um, I got exposed to more and more thought leaders in the fire service, particularly Frank Brannigan, uh, he was my uh, fire science instructor. 
and and the whole notion of firefighter death and injury uh frank did not see it as something heroic he saw it as something to be avoided and that the smarter we were we would increase our chance of surviving and not dying so I, I guess I became a, a Brannigan disciple, if you will, and I continued that uh, my whole career. Then, you know, a, another big point was when I got involved with just the simple act of firefighters wearing their seatbelts. You know, why don't we wear our seatbelts when everybody wears their seatbelt? You know, what what makes us so special that we don't have to do that? And so I was struggling with what's what is it about our culture that gets in our way of doing what we know is the right thing to do. And that's when I stumbled across um, Edgar Schein out of MIT, who really was the guru about organizational culture. And I started digging deeper into why firefighters behave the way they do. And the firefighter just responds the way they're taught to respond. So when a person comes in a firehouse, they're, they're immediately taught from rookie school that you have to be heroic. Uh, you never back out. You always put the fire out. Um, I think it was Bruno C that used to say in rookie school, the fire never goes out and we never have to back out. So we are taught only to go one way. And so we perpetuate that kind of stuff. And then on a bigger scale, when it comes to society, when a firefighter is injured or killed, we, they almost see it as heroic and as part of the job. And they make heroes out of us. When you look at a lot of the case studies or the NIOSH reports, many times there's nothing really heroic about what caused the injury or the fatality something went wrong so so therein lies how i got into this whole culture thing um i i i don't see it as when a firefighter is injured or killed they weren't doing something stupid they weren't dumb they weren't trying to get injured or killed they were behaving the way they've been indoctrinated to behave both by the fire service itself and in society in general so that's why it's such a hard thing to overcome. Uh, and uh, m- my my research says there's there's three things there's set there's a six seventh six things that drive the fire service: fast, close, wet, risk, injury, and death. That's what defines being a firefighter. But that's also connected to the whole manual fire protection concept. That when there's a fire, a group of people have to go put it out, yeah. which is a which is a different fundamental cultural model than the built-in automatic fire protection model, which means yeah. that when a fire starts or something, some mechanical or electronic device detects it, notifies the people that are at risk, and then automatically starts putting water on the fire, and uh, we're our mindset is we're still stuck on this manual fire protection model. And if that's all we have, then that injury and death is going to stay with us unless we can change the dynamic.
change the culture, not only of us, but of the society in general. That's, a long, answer. that's a long answer, Chief. I hope that wasn't. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's great. And I, you know, I think it's interesting. Some of the things you brought up, uh, you know, Frank Brannigan, uh, who both you and I knew, uh, his, his book, Building Construction for the Fire Service, is still a staple of the American Fire Service. And interesting that the whole culture of everything from the manual fire protection method, which, you know, if you go back to um, uh, Ben Franklin and his um, effort to reduce insurance losses by having folks uh, put fires out uh, so that it would lower insurance losses, again, a manual effort because there was nothing else, to the whole discussion about that, that Brannigan brought to the table of building construction and, uh, you know, knowing that, um, knowing what buildings can do to you and understanding all of that history is part and parcel to this whole discussion. So I think, you know, we started as a completely manual fire service. Uh, we built into a fire science uh, as people like Brannigan, not didn't start with Frank, obviously, but as people like Brannigan uh, brought all of that knowledge and expertise to the table. And then uh, it has continued to evolve with the advent of uh, sprinkler systems and residential sprinkler systems and uh, Deleuze systems and all those different um, automatic methods. And we'll talk about that here in just a second. But um, I wanted to touch on one other thing you said, and that was seatbelts. You know, I recall a time in uh, my fire service career where certainly riding the back step without any kind of restraint was just what we did. Um, I remember holding on to guys to keep them from falling off because uh, they were still getting their gear on. And that's just what we did to getting to where seatbelts were, quote unquote, mandatory. And of course, what did some what did some guys do? They got T-shirts that had a uh, seatbelt emblazoned across it and wore that so that when the cameras took pictures, it looked like they were wearing their seatbelt. So that culture, do you feel like we've made progress in that culture of, at least from the safety perspective, that we're, we're beginning to get it? Oh, I absolutely, Chief. We are light years away from 1970 when I walked into the firehouse. Sure. Absolute light years away. And, and so... We, I, I'll never forget one time I was at a, the uh, chief's conference down in New Orleans and I was standing outside with uh, Alan Brunacini and we were chatting about this. And um, he said, he said, Bert, you know, the fire service can change whenever it wants to. All we have to do is decide it's not heroic to die. I said, what do you mean, chief? He said, well, we decided it's not heroic to die at a hazmat incident. So now we don't have firefighters dying at hazmat incidents. Basically, because we know we can't handle it. You, you can get the, the toughest, crustiest old battalion chief or chief all or, you know, right seat guy. When he rolls up, if he finds out it's ethyl methyl bad stuff, he stops, cordons off the area, calls the hazmat team. In 1970, they would have been riding up to that thing, taking a sniff of it or tasting it to see what it was. Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen so, the so, yeah. So. So, I mean. So it, it's changed dramatically. Uh, so we are getting much better. Uh, okay. I was I was in Texas not long ago, and the guys gave me a ride back to my hotel. And when I got into the bucket in the back seat, the driver opened the door to check to make sure I had my seatbelt on. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. You know that that made my whole 50 year career worthwhile. That guy didn't Very know me from Adam. Very but cool. That, 
that was his normal thing. He was it was somebody outside a civilian, and he was making sure I had my seatbelt on in the back of his fire truck. So yep. uh, I, I know, but it's still we're not a hundred percent. That's that's the challenging part. Uh, you you can watch YouTube videos any day of the week of firefighters responding, and you know they're riding down the street without their seatbelts on, mm-hmm. and and nobody says anything. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's you know, definitely definitely incumbent upon our, our chiefs and our officers when they see those things. You know, we, we have got to be part of that change culture. We can't just laugh it off. Absolutely. Yes. Every, every one of us have that responsibility. Yep. Um, uh, I, 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 I can remember, um, uh, I won't say what fire department, but uh, the, the chief wanted me to go for a ride with him in the uh, canteen unit. And the canteen unit, only had a seatbelt for the driver. There were no there were no seatbelts any place else in the canteen unit. I said, Chief, I can't. so he went and did what he had to do, but I waited at the firehouse. Now, is that a big thing? No, this is a big metro fire chief. But I I had to live to my value system and sure. say, Chief, you know. So did that impact him in any way? I don't know, but I hope so. You know, I, yeah. I hope you saw that at least there's one guy, Clark, that lives what he says. Yeah. You know, and then there's going to be somebody else, the driver that ch- opened the door to check to make sure I have my seatbelt on. Yeah. You know, that's a, you know, so that. Yeah. Yeah. So I um, I'm going to talk about the next thing here. I, I read an interesting piece that you wrote in 2019 on the Prometheus paradox. Right. Can you talk about that? And how does that apply to the American firefighter in general and our sure. American fire culture in specific? Yeah. Well, <laughs> the, for those that don't know who Prometheus was, he was a, a Greek titan that supposedly stole fire from the gods and then uh, gave it to us poor humans because we didn't have any of the gifts. And uh, by doing that, he made humans just like gods. And uh, Prometheus really upset uh, Zeus. So we uh, had uh, uh, Prometheus chained to a mountain forever and, and sent an eagle to feed on his liver every day. And it would grow back the next night and they would eat him the next day. And even though by discovering fire, we became godlike, Zeus condemned man or humans to never completely control it. So I think what that means today is that with all of our technology, every time we have a technological breakthrough, it's good for us, but at the same time, it creates another potential tragedy. Take elevators, for example. Until they were invented, our ladders could reach the top levels. But once elevators made buildings go above you know, what they could normally walk up, now we had a whole new fire problem that society's technological advance. So that keeps repeating itself. Lightweight trust is another one that Brannigan talked about all the time. Uh, So society changes for the betterment of all of us, but those changes have ramifications that can negatively impact the fire service. Uh, let, Let me give an example. When when the uh, twin towers were built, uh, I was taking my fire science classes with Brannigan, 
And that was the first time that type of building had ever been built. And one of the things that they touted about it was that it was a lot lighter than the normal way of building stuff because the outside uh, walls help hold the weight of the building. It wasn't built monolithically like the Empire State Building. Well, Brannigan had his class do an analysis of a jet plane crashing into it with wow. jet fuel. And our conclusion was a pancake collapse because it wasn't built in a monolithic way and the steel would not be able to hold up against the fire that the jet fuel could create. Now, nobody ever thought that was going to happen, but guess what? It did happen. Yeah. Now, the new, now, the new One World Trade Center that was just built was built different than how the World Trade Center was built. That was built in a monolithic way. That weighs a lot more per cubic feet than the one world, the uh, World Trade Center did, because they built it to withstand that kind of crap. The concrete's heavier. It's a stronger building than the two that came down. So it's not that we don't know how to build in fire protection. It's that society chooses not to do it. And sometimes we don't have a seat at the table when those kind of decisions are made. Uh, one, one of my concerns now is they're building large, high buildings out of wood. Yeah. And, you know, what kind of challenge is that going to create for over the next 50 years for the firefighters that are going to have to face that? And uh, uh, I so those are some of the challenges that are being created. And we haven't. We're, we're, so it goes back to that stuck on that manual fire protection model, because when they design buildings and they put in the fire protection, the built in fire protection, when all the systems fail, their fallback position is we can always call the fire department. So now we are expected to go risk our lives and the lives of people in the building or living in the community that the danger is beyond anything we're capable of actually dealing with. The Paradise Fire in California is the perfect example. And the Grenfell Fire in London, Great Britain, is the another perfect example. Yeah. Th those fires were beyond the capability of any fire department to deal with. Yeah. How many more of those exist out there? And, and, you, and, and we know they're everywhere. Abs they're everywhere. Yeah. And they those the challenges were created 20 years ago when they were designing them and building them and and not going for the highest level of fire protection. They were doing the minimum level of fire protection. Yeah. Well, you know, that, that's after the minimum fails, they call us. And now we're expected to be Hercules and yeah. solve the problem. And we can't. Yeah, so you know it's interesting the way you said that the um, uh, the default is always us, and if you remember, um, as I talked about in the beginning, Ben Franklin, uh, prior to him starting the the fire department there in Philadelphia, outside of Philadelphia, the default was insurance, and his as an insurance agent himself at the time, his answer 
to his mounting losses of insurance was to create the fire department. And what we have seen over time as the fire service has evolved and sprinkler systems have evolved and the building industry lobby has uh, become the animal that it is and how those forces fight against each other. We're in a position now where in a lot of small um, jurisdictions, I, I have some of this sentiment where, uh, where I am in Florida that uh, there are politicians who believe that uh, they don't need a fire department because that's what they have insurance for. So we start talking about history repeating itself in my case. And in all of these incidents you talked about, it is history repeating itself. So as we talk about an automated, more of an automated fire service or the need for the embracing of an automated fire service, how do we convince the powers that be, to believe in the power of an automated fire protection service. Well, you're right. We're 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 fighting a, a tsunami here. You know, a, a a very big wave because all these people are going for the uh, ec- their their motivation is economic. Yeah. When when just recently, when the uh, president or chief executive officer of the Pacific Gas and Electric Company, he just admitted to manslaughter for all the people that died at Paradise. Mm. And his comment was, we put profit ahead of safety. Yeah. So so that's that's their point of view. Now, I'm not saying profit's bad, but we what we do, we don't do it for profit. Sure. But I think I think how we can help is we at least have to tell the truth. Every, every mom and dad thinks that if their house catches on fire, a fireman is going to come save them and their children. And and we think that, too. And we will do everything to do that. But the reality is the chances of us saving somebody aren't that good anymore. Yeah. So so if we told them, look, how many fire chiefs today have the courage when the news you know, camera goes in front of them and say, chief, you know, what do you think about this? And the chief says, well, if you don't have a smoke detector in your house, we can't save you. And if you don't have sprinklers in your home, all your stuff is going to burn down. All we really can do is keep it from spreading to your neighbor. Mm-hmm. How, how would that change the discussion? Yeah, and I think that's I, I think it truly is different. That discussion, that conversation is different in the different areas of the country. Uh, you know, we we both had experience in Washington, D.C. area where residential sprinklers uh, became a norm. Yes. In, in new construction. And uh, we we showed an 85 um, percent reduction in uh, fire loss and uh, for the first 20 years, 100% reduction in fire deaths yep. from, uh, uh, where we had sprinklers involved. So we know that it makes a difference because we experienced it. But for the people that haven't experienced it, what is it going to take? Uh, you know, and I think I'm, I'm talking from an education perspective to educate these politicians, because that's really the powers that be. Mm-hmm. Uh, wh- what is it going to take to educate them on the need for this automated fire service? Well, the, pol- the politicians are only a reflection of society in general. Yeah. So 
when when there when there's a when there's a fire and a fatality, uh, unless it's arson or something, the first thing society thinks is that it's an act of God, and they feel sorry for the the mom and dad who lost their kid. It's yeah. it's, a, it's a sympathy kind of thing. They they so we don't want to blame anybody, but if we say if we as as nicely as we can, we can say this loss is because there were no working smoke detectors in this house. Right. This loss is because the sprinkler systems were not activated. So we have that's the truth that we can tell every day. Um, and, you know, that's hard to do because it yeah. goes against our norm. You know, it, and it, but I, I, I'm really convinced just just the other day, I saw a, a report of a fire in New York City and uh, the, the there was an apartment fire. And the family woke up because of the smoke detector. So they had early warning. They uh, sheltered in place in the bedroom. The fire department was able to get there, put the fire out, and save them. But the lead of the story was the importance of the smoke detector. Mm -hmm. That's what allowed that save to take place. Yeah. So, So it's those simple little things, Chief. You know, and then, you know, at the big macro level... You know, I'm, I'm a cancer survivor, so I can say this. You know, we pat ourselves on the back for getting all these presumptive cancer laws in states, but there's still only two states that have mandatory residential sprinkler laws. Mm-hmm. What are we fighting for? Yeah. You know, if we if we fought as hard for sprinkler laws as we fight for cancer presumption laws, we everybody would be better off. Because if you don't have the fire, you can't have cancer. Yeah. Yeah, sprinklers sprinklers make a hell of a difference, and um, you know it, the cost that it it, oh, it can be per square foot is uh, minimal to the cost of the funeral. Oh yeah, oh absolutely, and 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 the the cost of injury to firefighters. Sure. Either you know health wise or at the incident or whatever. So I, I that that's why we need that major paradigm shift. Uh, that fire service leadership starts talking about those kind of things to have the courage to say, look, if if we don't want to repeat Paradise and Grenfell over the next 50 years, we need to start having tough conversations right now. And what the fire service can do is say, look, you know, you may want us to come save you, but the chances of us saving you aren't very good. We'll do our best, but this this is not going to work out well. And 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 when I wrote my first book it was titled "I Can't Save You But I'll Die Trying." If I were to rewrite it today, I'd say I can't save you and I don't want to die trying. Yeah, that's that's the mindset that everybody has to have. Yeah. So folks, there you go. It's it's time to have some tough conversations. Uh, Doc, I want to thank you for uh, taking time today. Um, if you, if our listeners out there would like to, to hear more from Dr. Clark or read his books, you can find them at AmericanFireCulture.com. That's AmericanFireCulture.com. Doc, I appreciate your passion for improving the fire service uh, culture and reducing firefighter mortality. To our listeners, uh, this is Mark Bashore. Thanks for being with us today. Join us next time here on Side Alpha Podcast and follow us at FireRescueOne.com. Keep safe, stay smart. 